Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm spiffy. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, indie filmmakers are kind of freaking out. After decades of big deals at film festivals like Sundance and Berlin Ale, uh, studios big and small are pulling back on high-dollar deals that have been handed out willy-nilly over the years. A little bit of history here. Brief history first, because i got to set the stage. Huge outlays for indie cinema have always been a somewhat risky venture, but that risk used to be lower and the reward used to be much higher. Uh, this was back in the whole Weinstein slash Miramax day where their theory of business in the 90s was they would buy up potential low budget hits for, you know, low to mid seven figures. They weren't spending a ton of money, but they were they were kind of flooding the marketplace with these offers. Sometimes they would recut them in the editing room to make them more palatable for mainstream audiences. Sometimes they would just distribute them as is or tweak the ending a little bit, you know. But the point is they were distributing these relatively cheaply acquired films in the hopes of turning a million dollar investment into a $20 million box office hit. Or in, you know, rare cases, you get a movie like Chocolat, which was a $70 million hit in the United States. Yeah, rare, but it still happened. A24, for instance, in the current scene, A24 kind of operates on this business model, though their festival purchases tend to be smaller and their box office returns are in a very routine and meaty like seven to $10 million range. If you're making a bell curve of their hits, like 60% of them are in the seven to $10 million range. Big sales have largely migrated to the streamers over the last few years, right? Where Netflix, Apple, and Hulu are basically all spending big on movies like Fair Play, which Netflix bought this year at Sundance for 20 million, or Coda, which Apple bought for $25 million in 2021 and paid off for them with a best picture win at the Oscars, uh, or in Palm Springs, right? Which Hulu bought for $22 million back in 2020. However, the traditional indie studios, folks like Searchlight, Focus Features, others, have become much more gun-shy in recent years. In part, that's because they are simply getting outspent by the streamers, all of which are playing with Monopoly money in this game. In further part, it's because the landscape has shifted very rapidly so that big deals could quickly become big millstones around the necks of these studios, as when, uh, remember when Fox Searchlight bought Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation for a then record $17.5 million in the midst of, you know, Black Lives Matter and everything else. And they were like, this is going to be it. This is going to be the, it's going to win Oscars. It's going to make so much money. This is what the zeitgeist wants. And it turns out it's not because, uh, you know, the the accusations about sexual assault in the director's past that resurfaced and his inability to handle it in interviews. And I mean, it, it's just a shaky ground all around. Mostly though, the real problem here is that audiences simply are not going to movies like these in theaters anymore. A movie like Tar makes less than $7 million domestically despite being receiving universal critical acclaim, getting a Best Picture nomination. Nobody went to go see it. I couldn't remember the last time there was a real breakout Sundance hit off the top of my head, right? Even potentially mainstream-friendly movies like the comedy Britney Runs a Marathon totally died at the box office. That movie made $7 bucks. The Witch is practically an MCU-style hit by modern standards, right? And it made about $40 million worldwide for A24 after its Sundance pickup. Like, the last the last actual genuine mainstream breakout Sundance hit I could remember, you gotta go all the way back to 2006 with Little Miss Sunshine, which grossed $100 million worldwide. Uh, Fox Searchlight picked it up for $10.5 million. Now, I'm probably missing a movie or two here in, in the mix. I, I don't know. But the, the point is the audiences simply aren't there. And we could talk about 
changing audience patterns all we want, just in terms of what people go to the theaters for, right? We can talk about the rise of franchises, a big piece in The New Yorker this week about uh, the MCU and how it has kind of gobbled up all of the space. There's sequelitis. There's the ability of horror and horror alone to find a standout spot in the original market space. But really, at least part of the problem here, if we're being totally honest, is that Sundance has evolved into a thing that showcases movies that appeal to Sundance audiences and no one else. Like, I'm sorry, is anyone super surprised that the gentrification crime drama 1001 died at the box office or that Tiff Darling, The Inspection, the critically acclaimed movie about a gay man who enlists in the Marines to prove he has value, grossed the less than half a million bucks in the United States? Like, if you just describe the loglines of these movies, they feel like parodies that South Park would have come up with in uh, the mid-1990s. Now, the artistic value of these movies is entirely beside the point. Sometimes they're great, sometimes they're not. The simple fact of the matter is, if they don't play with audiences, no one's going to buy them. None of these movies are playing with audiences. Uh, and making movies is expensive. It has always been expensive. You only get to make and distribute so many of them if you cannot convince people to pay for them. It's a marketplace, and like any other marketplace, it can be brutally efficient. Alyssa, should anyone be surprised that the indie market is drawing up? And like, who who do we blame here? Do we blame the studios for buying a bunch of movies that are never going to play with audiences? Do we blame audiences for not showing up? What? Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it is not shocking that this is happening. And I wonder if one under discussed factor in this is that in the process of sort of fragmenting the audience, undermining the linear TV model, and moving away from advertising, the entertainment industry did itself a disservice in the sense that I think it's hard to communicate to people that some of this stuff exists, right? I mean, if you have 20 million people turning in for ER or whatever, you know, you can advertise to a sort of a mass audience repeatedly in a kind of targeted way. And so it's easier to build mass awareness of some of these smaller movies. And, you know, I wonder if streaming has hurt that a little bit. But yeah, I mean, look, I think the question of how do you make an argument to audiences that these movies are worth seeing and that they're worth seeing in theaters is a complicated one. I mean, you know, Peter, from hanging out with you, I've learned a lot more about how to appreciate sound in movies. And so when I saw Tar, you know, I was much better prepared to understand how the experience of watching that movie was different for me in a theater than it would have been at home, even in my old house, which, you know, when we bought it came with a built-in surround sound system. And so my ability to understand is like, oh, this is a qualitatively different experience because, you know, the theater system, I can hear sound moving physically the way that Lydia Tarr sort of does in her apartment. And that's just not something that I could get at home. It's not something I would have understood 10 years ago before we started going to movies. And it's not necessarily the kind of thing that I think people talk about in reviews or other things very often. And look, I'm guilty of this too, right? Like I'm guilty of talking about cinema as sort of this, you know, a common experience where we can sort of show this vulnerability. But like technically, it's actually useful, I think, to audiences to understand why seeing something in a theater is different than what they can get at home and why that's true even in sort of a smaller, more adult-oriented movie, right? I mean, the article that you talked about in The New Yorker um, by Michael Schulman, who also has a really good new book out about um, the Oscars, newish book, you know, has someone saying in it, like, theaters are for spectacle, right? 
And I think that studios, critics who care about theaters, you know, cinema lovers in general, actually need to get better at explaining to the audience about what these different kinds of spectacle are and how they're different, right? I mean, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how just the average picture quality has improved a lot at home, right? I mean, the kind of flat screens that we all have now, even if I have yet to update to the kind of OLED you guys keep telling me about, um, it's just vastly better than anything we would have had as kids. But like, you know, even you, Peter, don't have quite the sound system that (laughs) professional, you know, a professional commercial theater does. And so, you know, I think that if, if you want independent cinema and, you know, smaller adult oriented dramas to have a theatrical future period, um, helping the audience understand what the qualitative difference is between seeing it in a theater and at home is going to be really important. And I don't know how to do that. I don't quite have the answer. I don't think it's like Nicole Kidman walking into, you know, an AMC theater in like a sparkly suit, sitting there by herself and being like, we need community is going to do that. Tom Cruise being like, I jumped off a mountain on a motorcycle for you might help explain that. But like, then you would also need Tom Cruise to do that about like sort of his, you know, the period when he was doing like critically acclaimed stuff, not just trying to kill himself for our attention. I do appreciate him trying to kill himself for our attention. hundred percent. I'll go see that in the theater uh, five We're times. We're all big fans. The, the real five life... Times. You know, action movie where he hunts down Christopher Tennant for taking away his Christopher IMAX Nolan. screens. Not Chris- Christopher, Christopher Nolan. I'm sorry, Christopher my, Tennant, yes. my brain is broken. The the real uh, life movie where Tom Cruise like goes out and murders Christopher Nolan for taking his IMAX screens from him with Oppenheimer. Uh, I will also watch. You know, amazingly. That's definitely like the movie star drama that I care about from this summer. Yes. It's going to be a Tom Cruise, Greta Gerwig uh, team up. They're, they, they're the Avengers of the theaters. They're the gonna, most, yeah. Christopher Nolan is the most dangerous game. <laughs> um, uh, Peter, I mean, look, here's the, here's the thing. Again, I like I empathize with people who want to spend the amount of money it takes to make a movie look good. Right. I empathize with indie filmmakers who need. Look, again, making a movie is not cheap, even in an age where cameras have become much cheaper. You know, there's still all sorts of things that cost money. Lights cost money. Uh, Craft services cost money. Paying actors cost money, believe it or not. They actually want to get paid. And there's COVID stuff and there's there's just all sorts of expenses. Making a movie is not cheap. Making a movie is not cheap and people want to recoup their investment uh, so they can keep making more movies. Even like it's not like somebody's making uh, an indie at Sundance with the expectation that it's going to be a billion dollar grocer. Right. Nobody's doing that. But they do want to make enough money to keep making movies. And we are in a landscape right now where that is extremely hard to do. It's just hard to quantify that and to make the money. So what's the end game here? What's the actual result? What's going to happen? Oh, man, you're asking me to predict the future. I'm so good at that. I I know exactly what's going to happen. And that's why I've got all of my money tied up in what's going to happen in the future. And I'm not going to tell any of you guys what it's going to be, because then you would all invest all your money into it. No, this is I I don't know what's going to happen. But here, let me. It's all in birth of a nation stock. (sighs) Sonny, don't make me (laughs) come through this screen. Uh, I think there's a bunch of things going on here. Um, One is that television is increasingly uh, competing with smaller movies. And the type of people who used to go see indie films now watch Succession. 
Right. And like this, you know, one of the sort of like secondary um, bits of like Twitter discussion around succession is, wow, there's sure like a huge amount of discussion about succession for a show that not very many people watch, which is true because it appeals to like a lot of people in the media who tweet a lot. But the type of people who used to go see, you know, 90s Steven Soderbergh movies before Ocean's Eleven, the type of people who used to go see Weinstein films, Miramax movies, right? Like the, uh, in limited release in big city, were urban, big city, like media types. And now they stay home and they watch premium television. And premium television, even if you don't exactly like the trajectory over the last decade or so as, as, as it has expanded, it's just so much better than it was in 1995 and so much more culturally relevant and has like taken the place of the uh, of both novels and, and sort of like cinema about our times that like as like the the storytelling form that elites who like to be on top of what people are talking about want to talk about, right? And so television is just, you have to like, you have to put that in this story here. And and people aren't going to see the types of movies that you described, the Sundance films, right? Like in part because there's just a lot of really good, really smartly written stuff that is in most cases, or maybe not most, in many cases, slightly better targeted, slightly edgier, slightly more pulpy, slightly more kind of satisfying in a visceral way because there's more violence or whatever or sex, right? Like and this is this is just a what has happened with television versus small movies. Television is not displacing Marvel and it's not displacing I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean might be displacing itself, right? It's not displacing 150 million dollar tent poles, but it really is displacing festival films. And in part because it's it's very good and in part because like the the effort to go see it, the cost to your time and your wallet is just so much smaller. And so, like, we have to sort of think about this in the context of these types of films competing with television. But there's other things happening here, too, uh, one of which is. Sonny, you read these like log lines and were like, these movies are bad and will, or maybe not they're bad. You, you, not you that argued, they're bad. I you did said, not you, say you, that you they actually, were bad. Right, sorry. You said these, these films are not going to connect with audiences. And I think there's something really true about that. Though, like, in some sense, I want to ask you, like, <laughs> your argument kind of sounds like it's the libs, right? Well, it kind of no. sounds like that. Is that what well, you mean? No, I mean, very specifically what I was thinking about when I was when I was thinking about this question is there's a there's an episode of South Park yeah. that's basically parodying Sundance. And the the joke in this episode is like nobody wants to go see the gay cowboy pudding movie. And like that is what like every movie that has come out of Sundance basically has felt like over the last, I don't know, four or five years. It, it feels like there has been a reversion to this sort of thing. Now, look, the other part of this is that. Very few movies out of these festivals have ever found an audience. Yeah. There's never been a time where like 20 movies came out of Sundance and like all of them grossed $50 million and people were like, we got to go see the gay cowboy pudding movie in theater. Like that's never happened. So like, I guess my big question is like, all right, you don't have the big hits anymore. You don't even really have the small to medium hits like it's it's on some level what is the point of these festivals the point of the festivals is to try and generate buzz that will get people who care about these things to go to the movies to pay 
15 or $20 plus a babysitting fee or whatever it is that it costs them uh, early. Because I actually slightly disagree with Alyssa. As much as I personally care about the cinematic experience and, and the sound and the sort of the envelop, being enveloped in a movie theater, I think that in the heyday of indie cinema, the movies that did well did well, yes, because people liked seeing them at, at you know, in, in a theater. And yes, the, you know, they didn't have the, the home theater experience that you can have now, but they wanted to see them because they wanted to have seen them first because they wanted to be the sort of person who sees that movie before other people. Like the, it was a it was a, a signifier and a sort of class identifier that you are the type of person who has seen whatever already. And now that falls to television. That's your oh, I stayed up on Sunday night to make sure that I watched the succession finale at 9 p.m. and can talk about it the next day at the office. And that doesn't exist anymore. Sundance has used to be that they used to be the place where that sort of buzz like that's literally I mean. That's what buzz is, right? Like, that's when we say the word buzz about movies. It is people wanted to have seen it so they can talk about it, so they can tell other people, so they can be seen as the kind of person who sees it. And Sundance isn't selling that anymore. They are not effectively making the case that if you see this first, you will be cool. And that's what they used to do. And they've, in part because of competition from television and in part because of changing sort of the, the, the types of the movies themselves, they have failed to make that case to elite viewers. And we are now reaping the, the consequences of that. Yeah. I also, did either of you read Ken Aletta's recent book on Harvey Weinstein? Yeah. No. So I think one of the things that's interesting in that, that provides perhaps some context from the moment where we're in, is... Part of the Harvey Weinstein story was him starting, championing, you know, sort of more difficult work. Like the part of the legend of the Weinstein brothers is that they, you know, it's like they sort of found Quentin Tarantino and championed his work. But the perception over time became that Weinstein really kind of got away from those early interests and ended up championing a lot of stuff that was more sentimental and commercial and, you know, he was incredibly profligate, but he had a very sort of mixed hit rate. And in fact, you know, his brother Bob Weinstein's um, horror line was what kept the Weinstein enterprise kind of afloat. And so I wonder to a certain extent if the moment we're in is a product of a historical aberration that never really was kind of ending, right? I mean, there have always been periods when, you know, independent cinema did better and worse, but the sort of Harvey Weinstein created, you know, myth of Sundance as incubator of, you know, popular indie movies that were then sort of shepherded to big audiences by Weinstein himself is sort of a myth, both in the sense that Weinstein's hit ratio was very uneven and a lot of the movies that he was championing that were popular were not actually that difficult or raw in the sense that we're talking about Sundance movies here, right? Like Shakespeare in Love is sort of, and, you know, Chocolat too, are sort of strong examples of, you know, sort of Sundance movies said with air quotes as a proxy for indie that didn't really fit that model at all. We shouldn't uh, undersell the fact that the Weinsteins were the initial group that went in there and like really bid up the prices on all of yes. these things. Like that was, a, that's another a real market effect there is just like making it into a uh, a real slaughterhouse for uh, some of these smaller distributors who you know had experience distributing this sort of thing. They did not have the reach of the Weinstein's, but they had the expertise, and they're all kind of gone. 
All right, so is it a controversy or a non-troversy uh, that nobody is buying movies at Sundance anymore and that the whole indie scene is dying and is going to go away and nobody's going to make independent movies ever again? It's just going to be Marvel and Succession forever. Peter? I think it's not really much of a controversy because something else will fill the role that Sundance used to play. There will be interesting, independent weird cinema but maybe it won't be in the movie theaters maybe it will be somewhere else Alyssa, um it's a non-troversy but it's a bit of a tragedy and i really don't want my entertainment future to be one where i have to watch stuff on like google or meta's dumb ar glasses uh it's it's a controversy because you know if you don't have the indie darlings making their movies at the indie festivals who's going to direct the next crop of mc who's how are you who is the mcu going to absorb into their machine to suck the soul out of. Because that's how TikTok these... influencers. It's going to be the TikTokers. My understanding is that that's how the Marvel machine actually runs, is that they find the hottest young indie director possible and then strap them to the machine from The Princess Bride and steal their essence and use that to power the Marvel machine. That was actually in Michael Schulman's story. I don't... You, did you guys get to that part? The, the soul-sucking part? Anyway. All right. Uh... <laughs> All right, uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on cliffhanger movies. Speaking of which, on to the main event. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, uh, which is the best-looking one half of one movie you'll see all year long, I guarantee it. Spoilers ahead, so if you're worried about this sort of thing, don't send me a tweet tomorrow that's like, why would you talk about this movie that you said you are going to be talking about on the podcast? I get those sometimes. Don't do it. Across the Spider-Verse picks up where the first one left off, kind of. Uh, actually, it starts a little bit before the end of the first one, as we get to see what Gwen, a.k.a. Spider-Woman, a.k.a. Spider-Gwen, though she's not called that in this movie. That's a, that's a comic's name. And, uh, and we learn about her tragic backstory, which involves the death of her universe's Peter Parker. Tragic backstories. That's what this movie is about. And it asks a very important question. Does Spider-Man need them to become Spider-Man? Look, I'm just going to skip over most of the plot mechanics here. Usually this is the part of the review where I tell you what happened in the movie, but I'm not going to do that because it would take me forever because there's so much going on and there's so many different characters that if I start reading off character names and character voice actors, it's going to take me forever. Long and the short of it is this. Spider-Woman is now part of a multidimensional band of spider people who hop around the multiverse, fixing tears and holes so the whole thing doesn't collapse in on itself when something that was supposed to happen does not happen. And you know what's supposed to happen all the time? To every spider person, bad things, traumatic things over and over again. We see Spider-Men who watch their uncles die, who watch as police captains are crushed to death by rubble, who watch their loved ones next snap after the Green Goblin tosses them off of a bridge. Uh, Miles Morales, who is voiced by Shameik Moore, is, we learn, a mistake. He was bitten by the spider destined for some other spider person, leaving that spider universe without a spider protector. When Miles learns that he too will have to suffer canonical trauma in order to keep his universe from unraveling, that frankly his father is going to likely be the one who has to die, he says no and makes a run for it, leading to a shocking cliffhanger. And that the film ends on a cliffhanger is not what renders it half a film precisely here. The real issue is that this movie does not resolve the fundamental idea at its heart. And that idea is this. Spider-Man's entire history in every iteration is guided by trauma. He is a living manifestation of the so-called trauma plot. I want to bring up an essay that Alyssa mentioned a little while back in a previous episode, uh, The Case Against the Trauma Plot, uh, which was in The New Yorker. And here is a line from that essay that felt 
like it was a shot straight out of this movie. It felt like this movie was taking this line and making a visual image of it. Here, here's the line, quote, the invocation of trauma promises access to some well-guarded bloody chamber. Increasingly, though, we feel as if we have entered a rather generic motel room with all the signs of heavy turnover, end quote. Again, this is almost a precise shot from the movie where we see each of the spider people standing next to a shadow of a dead loved one. We see we see the trauma play out over and over again. It's the same. It is increasingly generic. It is not that interesting. To gain access to their chamber, it is demanded that Miles make a sacrifice, but he would rather have his father alive and get to spend time with him than spend time in that generic motel room with Spider-Man 2099 and the rest. It's a really interesting idea. And like, frankly, it's far more iconoclastic than anything else Marvel has done with the multiverse concept. It's real. This is actually like a real effort to play with the idea of what it means to exist in multi dimensions all at the same time, all having slightly different iterations of the same character and idea. Unfortunately, this idea is also incomplete at the end of this movie. There's no resolution. And I would honestly be very curious to know if the folks at Sony Animation even actually really have a, re a resolution. Like, given that the, the sequel it's scheduled to come out next year, I hope that they do, given that. But knowing a thing or two about how some of these movies are made, I wouldn't be too surprised if they are still in the writer's room trying to work it out. Getting hung up on the plot of this movie is beside the point, though, uh, as this is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. I mean, it's just a delightful mashup of animation styles ranging from 3D to kind of pencil and ink to punk collage. There's all, like a sort of neon watercolor thing going on in the Spider-Gwen universe. I don't I, I like frankly don't have the words to describe a lot of what I was seeing in it. But it's glorious and it's wonderful and it's packed with jokes in the background and foreground alike. I, I really just can't wait to get it on 4K and just go through it frame by frame to see what I missed uh, and what they uh, had kind of packed into all the corners of the frame. Peter, what did you make of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? I loved this movie. I have a particular attachment to Spider-Man, like almost like a childlike emotional, no, not childlike, uh, going back to my childhood emotional attachment to Spider-Man. Like in the sense that like right here in my office as I am podcasting, I am looking at my very first published anything ever in a national publication, which is a letter I wrote and got published in the letters page of, Ama of Amazing Spider-Man back in the 1990s, right? And so I have a, like a framed copy of this sitting, you know, hanging on the wall in my office from when I was in fourth grade because Spider-Man has always been really important to me. And what I love about this franchise is it takes this idea of like it, it understands that Spider-Man is important to a lot of people. In particular, it's important to like a very particular, a specific strain of like kind of nerdy, kind of awkward dude. And then it's like, but what if, what if we could just take the idea of Spider-Man and make it accessible to everyone and not just like, a, it's of course I see myself and Peter Parker. Of course I do, right? Like I'm I'm a I, I'm a Peter who's like, like kind of a nerd and like a little bit awkward and like doesn't quite fit in, but like is wanted to go into journalism and like, yes, but what if we could just what this franchise does is it says, okay, that's great. All the Peters in the world can relate to Peter Parker, but what about the Mileses? And what about the Gwens? Can we make a spider movie that says that everybody should be able to relate to Spider-Man somehow or another. And like that was the first one, and that's even more so in some ways the second one as well. 
then you combine that just, you know, that that like great idea with really incredible comic book inspired animation that is often like often takes uh, the art in a really abstract direction that like frankly feels like a, at times like I'm watching a fairly obscure like art film from the 1970s where it's like, man, is Ralph Bakshi involved in this? What the hell am I? Except this is a hundred million dollar tentpole summer superhero film in the era of tentpole superhero movies. And I, I like I frankly can't believe that this movie exists and how good it is. Then, like, there's just all this other stuff that works on a more kind of discreet and practical level. So there's this great sequence. The, the opening of the movie is so busy. And I almost thought it was going to be a little too noisy and a little too calamitous. This whole sequence with a Leonardo da Vinci inspired version of the vulture who just shows up in like our timeline and is like and and like it just like what am I watching? How, like, how can I put all of this together? And then we get to the middle of the movie and it really it was like I was like, this is great, but it might be too much. And we get to the movie and it slows down. And it actually brings you in with sequences that are much more classically directed and shot. And in particular, there's this very long sequence between Gwen and Miles, our, our two spider protagonists, in Miles's dimension, where they meet up again after many years of not having seen each other. And it's this great tender kind of adolescent love sequence in the middle of this big, crazy, zany, multiversal Spider-Man movie. And the fact that the movie not only just manages to pull off the sequence, but has the smarts to say, oh, you know, we're going to throw a ton of stuff at you at the beginning. And then also we're just going to settle you in for like the most classic teen romance, but in spider vision in like in with the, these shots where they're like just sort of hanging upside down looking at the the new york skyline and i don't know i just like i fell in love with this movie in a way that i haven't with a, a big budget movie in a really long time and i i like i i, I almost like i worry that i'm overpraising it but i don't think i am i think this movie is the thing that i want to see big studios produce all the time. And like every time I think back about this movie, I look at more, which is rare because every time I think back about it, I see something that worked even better than I thought it did in the theater. I see something that makes other movies trying to connect with a mass audience and trying to do big budget movie superhero stuff. Like it just, it embarrasses every Marvel movie of the last several years, every multiverse movie that isn't everything everywhere all at once. It just sort of shows you what a paucity of imagination is going into those things and how incredibly conservative they are. And I, I have some more thoughts, but I'll, I'll let Alyssa go here. I truly loved this film. And I, I just I, like I'm I'm almost like tearing up talking about it because it's like this is it. This is what Spider-Man is for. And it's what movies are for. Alyssa, I want to I want to kind of piggyback on something, Peter, is I think getting at. Uh, in, a, in a roundabout way, which is that for a very long time, studios and audiences have demanded that these movies be live action and be made to look realistic. Like everyone is like, well, you know, anybody can do a cartoon, but you want like the live action Batman or the live action Spider-Man. That's that's the real that's a real movie. And I wonder if this is the start of a very real pushback against the fundamental limitations of that and an embrace of like, well, comic books are an illustrated format. 
why not make a movie that reflects that and everything it can be? Yeah. And I think that, you know, while Peter was talking, I was thinking about sort of the fight over whether comic books and comic book characters and comic book movies should be recognized as serious art. And that conversation has always seemed to me to sort of take place in a kind of ass backwards fashion, right? Because, you know, they are often about sort of bolting on a retroactive justification. It's like, oh, you know, these aren't just, you know, this isn't kid stuff. There's actually a metaphor here, you know, I mean, X-Men are about political radicalism or the Avengers movies are about whether power should be, you know, sort of regulated or concentrated in the hands of people who are themselves basically morally good. And they're not debates about sort of accomplishment in form and mode, right? They're not about whether, you know, the sort of visual beauty of these stories or the writing or the wit. And the artistic ambition of the Spider-Verse movies just knocks that conversation back on its ass, right? I mean, you know, these are movies where, you know, just the visual accomplishment in multiple forms of animation and sort of creating these visual languages and the way that they play with each other is just a staggering achievement, right? I mean, having, you know, Daniel Kaluuya's Hobie Brown and, you know, Miles Morales together on the same screen in effectively different styles of animation in a way that functions visually and yet underlines, you know, the differences in the characters. That's what an artistic accomplishment is, right? It's it's excellence in a form of expression that shows you something new. And we've talked a lot on the show about just a total, if you'll pardon my language, fucking mediocrity of the visuals in the Marvel Cinematic Universe of late. And, you know, to be reminded what a comic book movie can be, what artistic achievement in this form can be like, and then to have that wedded to a story and a series of performances that, despite not having sort of a world-threatening implication, and in fact, I mean, the spot is sort of wandering around threatening to destroy everything. But the movie is about the destruction of sort of Spider-Man as an idea, right? And maybe there will be knock-on consequences for, you know, their various worlds. But at heart, this is a movie about what it means to be good and what causes people to be good, right? And I think one of the things that is compelling about the Spider-Man origin story or the, you know, the Batman origin story to a certain extent is that they're a story about growing up and about sort of having responsibility knocked into you, right? And they're a story about sort of teenage boy recklessness and thoughtlessness and the event that makes someone shoulder responsibility. And, you know, part of what's interesting about taking away that trauma plot is you know, it says, what if people are just good? What if people have the impulse to be good? But also, what if it's harder to be good than the comics suggest, right? And, you know, to, to a certain extent, this shows up in all of the Spider-Man stories about, you know, how do you meet the sort of mundane obligations of your life? Like whether you're showing up to your, you know, your college counseling session or your, you know, date or an obligation for Aunt May when you feel this bigger sense of responsibility. But, you know, what if you don't need trauma to navigate that? What if that in and of itself is a, you know, worthy 
dilemma and sort of source of a hero's journey, right? And then, of course, in this movie, it's like, what if those mundane obligations are freighted with extra weight because your character is, you know, Afro-Latino in this case? What if, you know, your desire to go off to Princeton and learn about physics is coming up against your mother's fear that you won't be appreciated? Or, you know, what does your dad's promotion mean when he is, you know, a black cop in a city that, you know, when you're a teenager walking around with Black Lives Matter button on your backpack? And the movie doesn't dwell on any of this stuff, but it treats ordinary human goodness as an epic journey. And that in and of itself is a kind of moral inquiry that, you know, sort of is ambitious and artistically freighted in a way that the much noisier, you know, superhero movies we've had have kind of shied away from or been afraid to engage with too deeply. And, you know, it's just it's just so beautifully done here. I mean, the scene that Peter was talking about with Gwen and Peter, yeah, Gwen and Miles, sorry, um, clearly, you know, the past tugs at my mem- memory here, you know. It's so, Miles, it's Peter, they're all Spider-Man, we're all Spider-Man. Yes, um, you know, just like walking around on this dome, you know, moving in a way that, it, you know, is only accessible to them because of their superpowers, but that expresses this sort of sense of intensely private shared experience that you can only have when you're a teenager. I mean, God, it's just beautiful. It's just, it's beautiful and it's moving. And I haven't even gotten into all of the sort of parent feelings I had while watching this movie. Um, But it's just, it is human in the best possible way. And it just, I cannot imagine wanting to watch a Marvel movie ever again after this. And, you know, look, my desire for those movies was sort of trending down anyway, but I'm just like, I'm done. I'll watch them for the podcast because it's, you know, what I do, but that desire is gone. It's just eclipsed. I am going to see The Flash after we tape this, and I am not looking forward to it just because I was already like kind of shaky on the vi- a lot of the visuals in this just from the ads and trailers. And like, I'm, I'm not looking forward to it. Uh, all right, we're, we're running along here. Uh, so let's let's wrap it up. Uh, Peter, thumbs up or thumbs down on Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? Loved it. My highest possible recommendation for a big budget blockbuster. Alyssa? Absolute same. Gonna try and go see it again this weekend. Provisional thumbs up. Assuming they bring it home in the third. I, we cannot forget the Matrix Revolutions, folks. There, We cannot forget what has been done to us in the past. All right, so you, yeah, I got my eye on you, Lord and Miller. You get, you, you take care of this. You bring it home. We'll, we'll see how it goes. All right, that is it for this week's show. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>